0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today's focus is on Canada's business outlook and how CEOs and businesses are adapting to the current economic environment. Host Brian Borzikowski sits down with Goldie Hyder, the President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, to unpack what Canadian CEOs are thinking about right now. The Business Council of Canada represents about 175 CEOs of major companies in Canada, together employing over 2 million people and making up about 50% of the Toronto Stock Exchange in terms of market cap. Goldie discusses the challenges faced by Canadian CEOs due to economic changes, geopolitical tensions and new government measures, and emphasises the need for collaboration between the private sector, communities and governments to support the future of Canadian business. He touches on a wide variety of relevant topics, including the impact of global shifts on business strategies, concerns about the decline of democracy around the world affecting public policy, the challenges faced by the Canadian labor market due to demographic changes, other challenges related to interest rates, inflation and recession preparedness, and the importance of innovation and global market diversification for Canadian companies. Overall, Goldie is optimistic about the ability of Canadian business to persevere and be competitive. Take a listen. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: So let's kick things off with just uh, tell us a bit about the Business Council of Canada, just in case people don't know. What do you guys do, and and who are the people that you're talking to?
2: Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks again for, for having me. It's good to be with you and those of you who've joined. I appreciate your time. Business Council of Canada represents about 175 CEOs of the largest companies uh, in this country. Uh, They're not all Canadian, but the bulk of them are, and they're multi-sectoral. They're right across the country. And of course, there's a number of of, of, uh, subnationals that are here as well. They represent about 2 million plus employees. We figure out a multiple of, you know, sort of a 3 to 4x on the supply chain. So you're covering off about 8 or so million Canadians whose jobs rely directly on, on these businesses being successful here. They're about 50% of the Toronto Stock Exchange in terms of cap. So this is a size and scale that's the only place where the CEOs gather. And I'm very privileged to have a chance to, you know, to represent them and to speak on their behalf about their, their, their hope for our country
1: and for hope for our economy. You started in 2018, is that right? So you've been through a lot over the last few years and things you probably could not predict. What are CEOs thinking about today? As you said, you know, you're talking to a lot of them. What conversations are you hearing?
2: Yeah, I often say other than, uh, you know, a global pandemic we haven't had in 100 years and a couple of federal elections, it's been a quiet start uh, to my tenure here as I approach the five-year mark. Look, we're still standing. Uh, I think the the resilience of the Canadian economy, the resilience of the Canadian people, and I would say a shout out to the institutions that are under attack so much these days through COVID got us through a lot of things. Our governments, for all the ills that we complain about them, thank God we have the capacity to do what we did to keep people not having to worry about how they're going to eat dinner that night our business community who responded by keeping their employees safe, but so much of the innovation around rapid screening, around ventilators, around making sure that you know the, uh, the frontline workers were, had, their, had their, our, their attire that they needed, keeping our workers safe, the broadband that was used so everybody could do these virtual calls, with business doesn't get enough credit for what it did to get, us, yeah, to get us through this as well. And so there was a good moment out of a bad situation where we showed the country and we showed citizens that we could work together. Unfortunately, that seems like it's a long time ago now, to some extent, and people have forgotten what good we were able to do by working together. And too often, we're working at loggerheads. So when I speak to CEOs, most of the conversations are one-on-one, so they share a lot with me, which is probably the reason you're going to see me excited and passionate because I'm worried. I'm worried about what I'm hearing, and what I'm hearing largely is there's the issues that we all know, you know, labor, you know, cybersecurity, you know, return to work challenges, and so forth. Yeah, those are they get paid to do all that, but the bigger stuff. The big shifts that are taking place globally, that requires a lot of thought. It requires a lot of processing. What do I do as a corporation when I see the decline of democracy around the world, for example? You know, there are less democracies in the world today than there were just 20 years ago or so. And capital, as we know, uh, is neutral when it comes to ideology, it's neutral on nationality. It has no anthem except how to make one dollar two. And it will, like water, move to the path of least resistance and it will find a way to deploy to realize. What the purpose of that deployment is and so uh, there's a reason I think a lot of capital is frozen in democracies and or being deployed outside of democracies uh, because we have created complexities in democracies that were never there before we can have a 15 year old kid put 5 million people or 2 million people in the streets on a tweet and we can't get meetings with governments to talk about hey we got to get more lng to market here because they're turning on coal plants in asia and in, in other places so we're competing with that decline of democracy, the inability to build infrastructure in our countries. What's the last big infrastructure project Canada has seen? How do we survive in an environment in which on day one a US president can reverse an approved pipeline like Keystone? How do we do this in, in 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 democracy? So that's causing a lot of anxiety and a lot of worry because we're we're values are democratic. We believe in democracy, we believe in rights, we believe in you know competitiveness. And so how do you reconcile what your fiduciary duty is? With what your emotional attachment might be to a particular way, and so there's a lot of thought that's going into that, and this may surprise you because I think political scientists do that. The truth is, I think Canadian CEOs are very concerned about the decline uh, of democracy, and we're seeing it impact public policy on permitting reform, on the inability to build uh, to build things, uh, abandonment of fiscal framework of any kind. Um, you know, the, there's just so much going on there. The second bucket I will just say is this, and that is the the opportunity that the climate change uh, reality represents for Canada, for Canadian businesses and for Canadians uh, writ large. We have not been having an adult conversation about climate change for a long time. But what I call the Russia reset, the fact that Russia is exposed just how much Europe relied on Russia for gas and other countries like India and others rely on Russia for gas. It's the case because we can't get it to them. We've got to create the infrastructure and the capacity to get it to them. And it doesn't necessarily have to go to Europe. We can use what some call a swapping model. We'll just make sure more gas, LNG I'm talking here, goes to Japan, goes to Korea, goes to India and China, who are running coal plants. I mean, it makes no sense to business leaders that in an environment in which we're trying to reduce emissions, we're allowing coal plants to run, but we're being doggedly stubborn here. And I say this candidly to our federal government on LNG. Germany came. Japan came, Korea came, the entire EU came, and they were all sent home empty-handed. You know, when I was in Brussels just a few weeks ago, they said to me, we're the, we're the region that sent your country 50% of the vaccines that you used. And we're asking for a little bit of help, and this is what you come back with? One day we'll get you hydrogen? Come on. This is time for an adult conversation. So CEOs are seized with saying, at the end of the day, emissions are going to be reduced by us. There's not a government that's going to reduce their emissions without us. So we are all in. There's no need to convince Canadian corporations that climate change is happening, that you need the Indigenous support to to be able to move forward on these things, that a significant amount of risk capital is going to need to be deployed on carbon capture, on hydrogen, on SMRs, and on other innovation that we haven't even come to yet. We're ready to lead that charge, but we can't do it fighting our own government. We need our governments to work together, enable businesses with a regulatory uh, certainty that we need. The capacity for us to deploy capital with confidence that after election after election, your project doesn't run the risk of being retroactively canceled or having to retroactively reapply. That's what happened to Gateway. That's what happened to Energy. So those two things, Brian, and we can dig deeper into them, that's the big stuff that we're trying to wrap our heads around.
1: So, yeah, these are interesting. I think a lot of people will talk about interest rates and all those things, too. But, yeah. but these are the big conversations. And I wonder on just climate change, Where you mentioned LNG, but what about sort of investments in carbon capture and in just reducing emissions? It does seem, you know, it's a very corporate led initiative. Are companies that you're talking to engaged and excited and, and thinking about 2050 or now I think it's even earlier? And what are they doing to meet those targets?
2: Anybody on this call would know doing good is good business. And our, our members know that. That doing the right thing and doing good is gonna to lead to good outcomes for your for your bottom line. And so, but it's not an either-or. There's a false narrative being created here that's either the environment or the economy. It's either you're for renewables and you're against fossil fuels. A mature adult conversation about this based on facts would show that we're going to need both the fossil fuels for the next 30 to 40 years. It's not me saying it. It's not my members saying it. That's OECD saying it. You know those cars that we're trying to take off the road so that we can go buy electrical vehicles? We're not having a funeral for them and burying them underground. They're being sent somewhere else to be driven. And so those people are still going to need to be able to put oil in the car to be able to be able to move it. So that's one component of it. Why don't we leverage the resources that we have? We have the largest investment in Canada, at the LNG Canada, about $40 billion. that's now held by a number of different uh, companies and countries. That's going to be online in 2025. But we can double that. We have the capacity to double that to get even more LNG, to get these countries off of coal, just after we just said we had the hottest month in the history of the world last month. Well, I say to those people who are, who are allowing the burning of coal that you're responsible. And not only are you responsible, do you know Canada exports coal but won't export more LNG, which I've never been able to square the circle around. So that's a that's a, a big concern. So what are we doing about that? Your, your participants may have heard of what's called the Pathways Alliance. Pathways Alliance is a group of about eight companies that are ready to invest over 80 billion dollars in carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And I love to remind people that that act of capturing carbon and storing it is a is a do good act. <laughs> There is no market for carbon that you're going to capture and move it to a gas station and sell it to a customer for the moment. Maybe fiber is one day or whatever. But right now, business is saying we're putting up our hand. We're ready to do the right thing. We want some skin in the game from government tax credits, which they've offered. Let's get on with the innovation behind carbon capture. Give me the capacity to build the pipeline to bury the carbon. It can only be buried in Canada and Alberta, Saskatchewan and Ontario. Ontario is a long ways from Alberta. So we gotta get the permits to be able to de- capture it and store it, okay? That's regulatorily driven by governments. We can only move as fast as governments allow us to move, which is why we say, get out of the way once you get this done, let us do it. We're ready to do it. SMRs, small, modular nuclear reactors, mark my words, are gonna be a game changer on climate change because these are modular. I think they're about 500 megawatts versus 1600 or whatever the measurement is, And but the size and scale of normal ones versus these ones, they're modular, you can you know shrink them to lower, You can run a city of a million people on these things, right? Imagine how many cities are in the world are there with a million people for the cleanest form of energy possible, nuclear. Environmentalists for the longest time have been anti-nuclear. Our own prime minister said, I have not supported nuclear for over a decade. Now he's on record as having said, I've had to come around to the realization that nuclear is going to have to be a part of the mix. But you know what? We've been saying that for 10 years. We've been saying that for 20 years. And what Mm -hmm. happens? Capital doesn't get utilized there. You don't get the innovation that you need. And now we've fallen behind. So we can't allow the the myths to override the facts on this. And I could go on about just something as basic as electricity grids, Brian. If everybody got an electrical vehicle, we couldn't charge our cars. Right? right? (laughs) In the way of the good story that we hear every day from Ottawa.
1: I I do wonder just uh, on the competitiveness and maybe, you know, last point on the environment, It's just the Inflation Reduction Act in the US was a big deal. A lot of people excited about it. Our, Our federal budget tried to match that with different kinds of incentives. Do you think they went far enough um, and how is the Housing Inflation Reduction Act, maybe affecting competitiveness here? Do you see flows going to the U.S. when it comes to kind of renewables and, uh, yeah, the future of energy?
2: It's obviously easy being America. You're the currency of the world. You can do whatever the hell you like. You can throw as much money outside of helicopters as you wish. And they are. And they're doing it quickly. And they're attracting a lot of attention and a lot of capital. But you know what? They pissed off a lot of people. Can I say that? I, I guess I just said it. But they've made a lot of people upset. Uh, you know, the Europeans are upset, the Asians are upset, the Canadians are upset, the Australians are upset. People are like, what the heck, man, you've got all the capacity to do whatever you like, and now all the rest of us have to somehow find the capacity to compete with that. Now, we've done that. I want to give full marks to Minister Freeland. Uh, they, I've given her advice that just said, look, ratio, 10 to 1. If America gives $10, we've got to find one somewhere. She found the one. She found more than the one in many ways. Uh, what has struggled, and is just getting off the ground now, is the execution and the implementation. Policy is right, We need to get going and we need to get going with it faster, right? Because America never does anything slowly. When America wants to do something, it goes big or it goes home. And so capital, again, it's easy to form there. Talent is easy to form there. So we are responding. But what we actually need is to answer the question, what do we want Canada to be when it grows up? What is our goal? What is our industrial policy? We have won the geographic lottery and we have gotten comfortable and complacent as a result of it. But that's no longer possible because America is unreliable. We just saw what happened in the last USMCA experience. We cannot count on America the way we used to count on America. We've got to stand up for ourselves and figure out what we want to be. And Canadian business, again, wants to be a part of that. Let us
1: help you work together to figure the answer to those questions. In in terms of uh, interest rates, uh, the economy, recessions, what are people saying? Are people worried? Are CEOs worried about a recession? How are they dealing with this right now? Well, look,
2: with all due respect to all the economists out there, you're not having a very good run. (laughs) I've often said we have economists to make weathermen look good uh, or weather women, I guess, look good because let's face it, those who predicted long inflation or short inflation got that wrong. Now we've got long inflation. Those who thought, you know, we'd be well into a recession by now got that wrong. Now, you know, is there a soft landing? Is there a hard landing? Nobody knows is what everybody tells me. Everybody thinks they know. We don't really know. We had Larry Summers uh, at our meeting uh, just a few months ago and in Washington, and he said he expects an American recession to start in the middle of July. Very bad timing for the president, but it's probably good timing for a federal government here to perhaps have an election before that if they want to avoid that. Nobody knows. But here's what, we, here's what we do know. People are going to have some real challenges on making their mortgage payments, especially when their renewals come up in year 2025, because many of the people who locked in at the lowest rates available are going to be exposed to four, five, maybe more hundred basis points of increase. How is that going to work? That's going to be a real uh, challenge for them. Inflation, let's not forget, we are not at 2%. We're still not at 2%. We're 2.8. We're working our way down, but the governor has a mandate to get it down to 2%. So I expect interest rates will stay higher for longer because I don't think the bank wants to take a chance that inflation will suddenly bounce back or will will remain high. The challenge, of course, also is corporations look to their government for leadership. Well, what we're seeing is a total abandonment of fiscal discipline. I think I saw a colleague of mine share the fact that public debt charges are up 23% year over year, you know, but I mean, how are you going to pay for all of those? You either have to cut, we have to raise more revenue. Raising more revenue means more taxes. Well, the last thing we need in Canada right now are tax increases, whether it's for corporations or for individuals, right? And so we are asking the government to create a responsible fiscal anchor. It's not about debt to GDP ratio. You have a massive debt that you're coming off of. Of course, it's going to look good every year. We say, what are your interest payments against your revenues? that will force you to have some program review and cut back where you need to cut back, right? And put in place a growth strategy for our country. To give credit again where credit's due, our immigration policy is good for this country. Let me tell you, whether it's healthcare, housing, restaurants, retail, or airports, all of those issues are labor issues. So for those people who say, oh, there's too many immigrants coming to none of housing, there won't be any housing if we don't get immigrants in. We need plumbers, we need electricians, we need roofers, we need project managers. I've got members who tell me in the housing industry, they have 10% vacancy rate on any given day in their company. In some cases, that's your entire margin. We can't afford that. So we've got to figure this stuff out. Governing is hard. It's not just about getting ready for the next election. It's about doing the right thing for the people of the country. And that's what me and my members are trying to remind them of on a daily basis with solutions. We're not just complaining. We have solutions to these
1: problems. Right. So, so just in terms of this, but maybe a recession, maybe not, are the companies that you're dealing with, are they doing anything differently to prepare for a slowdown? Or is it business as usual? Or how are they dealing with the uncertainty right now?
2: Yeah, I think, look... Um, I thought Benjamin Tall over at uh, CIBC had an interesting line. He said, what you'll see is, is, is a decline in vacancies, not in jobs. Uh, that the jobs are still there. The jobs are still available. The government, uh, businesses are investing heavily in reskilling and skills development, particularly for future skills. Uh, we're pushing adamantly on, uh, on uh, getting our foreign skills accreditation rules done right with our professional bodies. We have nurses and doctors and engineers underutilized driving Ubers. We hear about it, but what are we doing about it? Is we need to get, uh, get um, our productivity up. It's a major issue in our country. Demographics are going to be coming at us. So I think there's a sense of how much can I control my own destiny? Obviously, we all know on this call, there's a cleanup underway where you need to clean up, you clean up. Okay? This is the moment where you're allowed to clean up, you clean it up. Uh, and you usually do it on not um, replacing workers, not necessarily firing workers, just not replacing workers. We're outsourcing this job or whatever the case might be. Uh, and or we don't need this job anymore because we've automated it uh, to some extent. And so I think a lot of that cleansing is going on. Um, there is a frustration for sure on the amount of capital that's available. So look, for a CEO to do share buybacks and dividends and stuff, no problem. That's that's easy stuff, right? That's not what they're motivated by. They're motivated by growth. They want to build you know, global champions outside of, uh, from Canada. They want to be able to compete globally. They want to be able to do M&As. They want to be able to, you know, uh, leave behind the playground better than they found it. And there's a sense of chill around that for all the reasons that I just identified. Or they're looking to new markets. The Indo-Pacific, tremendous opportunities in the Indo-Pacific. And so we're pushing for the diversification. Again, credit to the government, Indo-Pacific strategy. We've got to be in that place. They're, they're have Two missions are coming up to India and Japan that we're, that we're participating in. We have to move
1: away from just relying on America as we look forward. And just, just on that point, so what, you know, when we're talking about new markets, what do leaders want to see from those markets? What makes a good market today for Canadian yeah. CEO?
2: That's yeah, a great, it's a great question. I mean, look, at the end of the day, predictability, certainty, and confidence are essential. Being in a society that has, you know, uh, values that you share, uh, social cohesion in that environment, those are ideals, but we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a complicated world. And so you have to make choices. As I often say, all autocrats aren't made the same. All communists aren't the same. All democrats aren't the same, right? So we have to pick and choose. And what I look for is saying, what helps business feel confident? One of the things they look for, of course, is political stability, okay? We used to be able to rely on democracies that just because a government of a different stripe did something, take the GST or NAFTA or something, doesn't mean you came in and you reversed it. We can't have black become white every four years. There's no way to have predictability there. We need regulatory predictability and certainty and a depoliticization of those regulations. We have too many regulations now that end up in cabinet. What do they know about running a business or a mining industry or nuclear industry, but they get to override it, overrule it on basically political agendas, I would say. That doesn't make any sense at all. Our country was built by people who had regulators at arm's length from government. We empowered them, we told them what to do, like the National Energy Board or our investment review division and other, we had competent people make assessments and say, this is good for the country. This is bad for the country. We would say no to a project early, or we would say yes with conditions. You knew what you were getting into. Okay? We needed that. We need that. So where do you find that today? Trade agreements are a really important anchor for some of this stuff. And so I always highlight Vietnam for a reason. Vietnam is a communist country. But are they the same as other communist countries? Not necessarily. Stable government. They're not harming. They don't have human rights violations to the extent that we're seeing and happening in other, uh, other countries in some cases, even democracies. They have a labor pool that's an attractive labor pool. They support the advancement of their labor pool, but most importantly, they belong to the Comprehensive Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP for short, which gives businesses some confidence that there are dispute mechanisms here, there is ways to adjudicate, there are ways to resolve problems. And so Vietnam becomes an attractive option instead of maybe somewhere in North
1: America, if you know what I mean. On labor and employment, you mentioned labor uh, a few minutes ago, but it has been hot throughout this recent period. Do you see that changing? I mean, are companies still staffing up? Are they slowing down? Where do you see the labor front going?
2: The the demographic challenges are what they are. That's for sure. If you don't find the labor market that you need to, you're going to do one of three things, right? You're going to either uh, automate or you're going to outsource, right? And or you're going to relocate. (laughs) And so uh, obviously you have to remind Canadian governments, hey, these are my options here. If you want me to help you, we got to figure out how to get this right. Credit, as I said, to the to the level of immigration that's coming in, but the composition isn't exactly right, Brian. So what we've said as CEOs is, look, this is what the forecasts are for our labor needs. So you need to bring in more economic migrants. I'm not suggesting that refugees or family class people don't come to work. I just know that economic immigrants do and that they come at a young age. We bring them in at 25, 30, 35. So they're in your workforce for the next 30, 40 years. And that's the runway that we're looking at in a society in which we make 1.4 babies, our family, we're not doing our part over there, and we won't be able to fix that. We're not Japan. We can't do what Japan's been able to do in terms of ma- managing some of its uh, its downsize. We have to have population. We have to have the right population. So I think you're going to see labor force issues not really go erratically this way or that way. I think it'll be stable. The bigger issue around labor, quite candidly, is just people are still struggling as CEOs to get their labor force back to the office. You know, it's affecting productivity measurably. We have all the data I can point to that shows is a decline in email traffic on Friday, for example. Well, you're paying them. What are they doing if they're not on email that day? How come they work on email Monday to Thursday? You know, so why are car accidents happening on the weekend now, not on the weekdays? Like the, the data shows that productivity is, is, is changing here. People want to, their staff to come experience the workplace, the culture, the camaraderie, the learning, the, you know, the co-creation. And it's a big struggle for them. I know it's driven a lot of them in, into trying to find solutions, and it's been very hard. Some say maybe a slowdown in the economy might take care of that. We'll see.
1: Do you think CEOs are investing enough in innovation?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot happening. More can happen. Uh, and this is where I think the need for the government to get the tax credits uh, out the door uh, and, and get, this, get the uh, program set up in such a way that today, if a member called me and said, where do I apply? I don't have an answer to that question. There, there's no place. But in America, they're ready to dish it out to you if you go there tomorrow. And so we've got to expedite the delivery of the programs that have been announced, which are good. We just got to operationalize them, them quicker because at some point, I think business will will just keep deploying capital elsewhere.
1: I mean, you mentioned before that, you know, Canada has resources. We have opportunity here. We're engaged in the in the climate climate change. But there's always been this issue of an innovation gap in Canada, partly, I think, because the U.S. is right there below us buying Canadian companies. Do you see that changing at all? Um, Are we becoming more innovative? Uh, Are there more Canadian stories that we can talk about?
2: Yeah, I think, look, I think there are great stories. Too often, they're small stories. And those small stories of innovation incubators and quantum and AI and the things that are going on in Montreal and, and Waterloo and Edmonton, too often you hear of these companies, they get to a certain size and they sell. We're not very good at scaling in Canada. We're not very good at commercializing the research in Canada. And so we've got to do a better job of that. That alone is productivity gain, if we're able to do that. Now, some of that comes from attitudes, uh, culture. It's been good enough to be Canadian, right? It's just too easy to have the G1 next to you, and you just catch what you can, and it's good enough. But we need the ambition. And I think this is where, if I say with respect, but a lot of the people who are coming here from somewhere else, they're not coming here for the social policies. They're not coming here for social programs, believe me. They're coming here to work, and they're coming here because every one of them wants to say, "I want to be a billionaire." And we need that kind of ambition to help rise this country up from the complacency in which we find ourselves.
1: Right. Um, and and another question is just on uh, the you know the big trend in tech today AI. Um, it's, uh, it dominates a lot of the conversations we have with fund managers here and other other people. I'm, I'm curious on on that CEO level of big business. Are people paying attention to this? or thinking about how to use it? What is the impact going to be? Do you think?
2: Very much so, but I think they're seeing it more as an enabler, not a job replacer. That that what it's really doing is it might change your job um, because AI might be able to do certain things, but I still need you. I still need you to do something else. I mean, I look at many of our members have, and this unbeknownst because, again, safe landings don't get reported, um, but you know, they have their own education programs. Like Bell comes to mind with what's called Bell U, and they put their own staff through training programs while they're paying them to work to say, look, this job is going to end. But when it does, I need you to do this job uh, because they know how hard it is to get labor. They know how hard it is to get loyal labor. They know how, how much it, how risks there are to hire coal. As the old saying is, "costs you a dime to keep the person you have and a dollar to hire somebody new. They're investing the dime for sure to try and make sure the labor force of the future is, is being created. And I can go through a, a long list of people who are doing that kind of thing. So I'm encouraged uh, that that's happening uh, for the reasons that I cited. Uh, labor is not going to be replaced by technology. It's going to change the work that we do.
1: Just to wrap up, I'm just getting get kind of maybe final thoughts. I mean, yes, the last few years in, in your uh, tenure have been volatile COVID rates, economy. Where do you, are you optimistic about the future? Where do, where do you think Canadian business goes from here?
2: I'm optimistic about Canadian business because we have persevered. Long history of perseverance and we're very competitive. I think we can do better if we were supported by policies that allow us to do better in Canada. Otherwise, I am concerned, to be very honest. Uh, that we're going to see more and more investments occur outside of Canada, more and more growth occur outside of Canada. And my motivation here is to to set, set the conditions for Canada to be stronger than I found it when we came here. I want it to be a better place for my kids and my grandkids. And that doesn't happen by accident. You don't wish it or you have to do something about it. It takes leadership. We're trying to provide it as business leaders. We've also tried to be collaborators. Brian, I want your colleagues to know that this is not just big business talking about taxes and regulations and all that. Yes, we do that. But we're also trying to bring people together, whether you're in the labor unions or others, to say, let's work together to make it easier for our governments to do the right thing. Because if not us, who? Who
1: exactly is going to help us? All right. We will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. On fidelity.ca, you can also find more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.